0: Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, as we read verses 16 to 25. Hear now the word of God. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts. And flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak. But the spirit of your father speaking through you brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh God, would you help us to have a fair mind this morning to interpret the times in which we live. At the same time, oh God, would you lift our eyes above the circumstances in which we find ourselves so that our confidence is in you, in your spirit, and not in us, certainly not in ourselves and our own abilities and gifts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I think a lot of us probably are thinking about the subject of suffering this morning, We've been getting the email updates from Joe and Kelly and from the Bocheks. And one of the themes that just keeps coming out is this immense suffering that God's people are experiencing at this moment um, in Asia Minor, in the, the region of Turkey today. And today's passage speaks to a type of suffering, a subset of suffering, specifically persecution. Um, what our brothers and sisters in Turkey in this respect when it comes to the earthquake are experiencing is not what we would call persecution. They are suffering. They're perhaps being persecuted even uh, in Turkey, but not that the, the, the earthquake is not the same thing as persecution. When we think of persecution, though, in our type uh, area of the world, certainly in the West, we have a, a variety of reactions. And I think uh, especially when it comes to the American context in which we live. And that's primarily what I'm going to be speaking to today because, well, here we are. We're in America. Uh, When we think about America and we think about persecution, if you mention the subject of persecution, you tend to get two extreme reactions, right? You tend to get two very different reactions depending on who you're talking to. Um, If you mention persecution, you will have one group who will say something like this, Christians are the most persecuted people in the world. And if you look at America today, there's nobody more under attack than Christians. The radical left wants to shut down any business that's run by an Orthodox Christian. They want to make sure that anybody who doesn't agree with them, especially on the subject of human sexuality, is unemployable in society. And any news of Christians facing that type of trouble and persecution becomes confirmation of that belief, right? And so the tendency here is, as well as to not only see persecution as sort of the, at the drop of a hat, wherever it might be seen, but also to say there's far worse persecution coming and we'd better get ready for it. And so it's very negative about the present and super negative about the future as well. Um, that's an extreme exaggerated version of one kind of reaction. And then at the other end of the spectrum... Uh, let's call it the paranoia spectrum at the other end of the paranoia spectrum are Christians who say, well, you know, Christians in our nation aren't really persecuted at all. Uh, they will point out that Christians suffer all over the world in foreign lands, much more, much worse at the hands of very unfriendly governments and societies. They'll, they'll point out that for many years, it was people who claimed to be Christians who did the persecution of their fellow Christians because of their skin color in our culture. Uh, They will point out that Christians today have the protections of the First Amendment of the Constitution, that Christians today are free to live and worship and speak as they see fit. And so the group that gives that kind of response for them, any type of sensitivity toward persecution or or sense of persecution also gets treated like it's something ridiculous, as though it's a phantom pain, as though it has no basis in reality, as though there is no persecution happening anywhere in the world, as though Christians are actually the most beloved people in the world. And for those on this end of the the spectrum, they see Christian concern with persecution as either delusional or as some sort of hypersensitive uh, persecution complex at work. And I just want to say, it seems to me... The both extremes are wrong. Um, it is true that in our world today, we are more aware of bad news when it happens. Uh, it is true that it's not just our imagination that many of our fellow citizens would probably prefer that we were unemployed if they knew what our Orthodox beliefs actually entailed. Um, it is true that Christians are in- increasingly weird and unwelcome in public life in America. We are doing our best to make Portland weird by being here as Christians. <laughs> Um, this will probably endure for the foreseeable future. It is also not imaginary that people are more vocally opposed to Christianity. People are more comfortable shouting down Christian beliefs, more comfortable making fun of the idea of, of God than before. Uh, the moral foundations that help this nation become what it is are indeed being deconstructed and a new type of morality is taking its place. Um, That is not imaginary. Uh, Our fellow citizens are absolutely less tolerant of the Christian faith than ever before in our history. Those concerns are not imaginary. And I want to suggest that all of those things can be true. And it can also be true that American Christians can be oddly whiny for being as comfortable as we are. Um, We can be oddly quick to grumble. Uh, Our living situation is the strangest that has ever existed in the entire history of the Christian church. In spite of the hostility of our neighbors, we live in a nation governed by laws that are at their core intended to protect our ability to say what we believe and to worship without government intervention. Think back in Christian history. Uh, Rewind back to uh, the Puritan era of New England. Rewind even further back. Think about all of Christian history throughout all of time. Um, Even during the time of the Reformation, if you were a Christian, depending on where you lived, you would even be persecuted by fellow Christians. Why? Because you have the wrong theology of baptism, or you have the wrong doctrine of the church, or because you used the wrong liturgy, for instance. Uh, In England, John Bunyan was thrown into prison for years by his fellow Christians, even in Christian nations, many Christians have been persecuted for Jesus namesake. And yet our laws say here that you can't persecute someone for that and you, the state can't throw you into jail because of your doctrine of the sacraments, for instance. So this is what makes us in our current moment so very strange, Right. We live in a land that has ensconced in its core founding documents a belief that the state does not and cannot tell the church what to believe or how to worship. But we also live in an age that amplifies victimization. And so if someone can prove that something has harmed them, or if someone can prove that they have a lower status than their neighbor... Um, then the impulse of the time is to defer to the person who sees themselves as a victim. And I am afraid sometimes that as Christians, we may criticize that type of thinking and then buy into it at the exact same time. Where we want our voices amplified, and so what do we do, potentially, we amplify our own victim status. We try to convince the world that we are victims. We try to convince the world that things are really actually quite terrible for us as Christians. And so it is possible for us to succumb to the spirit of the age if we are honest, if we're honest with ourselves. Or that may not be it at all. Maybe we're not trying to prove that we're victims. Maybe Maybe we hear Paul's words in Second Timothy 312, where Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. And we think, when have I been persecuted? If I'm a if I'm a godly person, why is my life so easy? If I'm a godly person, why aren't I persecuted? Why, is my, why do my neighbors leave me alone? And so what do we do? We search our lives to see where persecution could be happening or where it could eventually happen someday. And we sort of seize upon it as a way of reminding ourselves that we really are godly people, like Paul says. I think it's helpful to put our lives and our comforts that we experience into the perspective of church history. For as long as Christians have existed, life has been hard in some way. Sometimes have been much harder than others. Some have been more comfortable than others. But there's never been a time in church history when a Christian could look out into the world and say, well, my unbelieving neighbors think I'm just the best. Uh, The state is being ruled by the best, most just, most amazing king I've ever seen uh my health is great my family loves me perfectly my pastor never steps on my toes the gospel is spreading throughout the world unimpeded with nary a speed bump to be seen there's never been a time where someone could honestly say that and in retrospect we sometimes get nostalgic we tell ourselves that it has been like that before that there has been some golden age If only we could get to it. And the reality is search through all of church history and you won't find that golden age. Life is harder for Christians than some may portray it. But life is also easier and more comfortable and more protected from Christians in the West than it has ever been in all of Christian history. And we have got to appreciate that as we look at a text like this today. Um, Because as we get ready to discuss what Jesus says here about persecution... We need to understand the time that we live in so that we really can be prepared for persecution. Why should we be prepared for persecution? Because Jesus says we should. He says we should. And so let's just look at the text. Let's let Jesus teach us today. Let's hear from him. I want to break down what Jesus says into three specific commands he has for us. And this is our outline. The first is beware. The second is be confident. And then third, Jesus tells us, be wise. So beware, be confident, and be wise. <clears throat> First, Jesus tells us to beware. Look at verse, uh, verse 16 to 18 again. He, he says this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Um, If you are looking for religion to be a comfortable, easy thing, then Jesus is not giving the best sales pitch here, right? He's, it's not like he's, uh, you know, it's going to be Disneyland, you know? Just come to me, and it's going to be Disneyland. Instead, he's he's like it's going to be it's going to be like the lines at Disneyland without the rides. Like, <laughs> um, he says, I'm sending you out like sheep into a, into a group of wolves. Right we we have a general idea what happens when a fox gets into a hen house. Imagine sending a hen into a fox house. That's that's what Jesus is really saying to us right now. He is preparing his people for hostility. He's not preparing them for a smooth ride. Uh, he's, saying, he's saying, behold, you're going to be in the midst of wolves. Beware, they're going to drag you into court. Behold, they're going to, they're going to drag you and punish you into the public, in the public square. Now, I, I talked about that, that spectrum of Christianity before, where I tried to sort of exaggerate both sides of how people respond. And I think what Jesus gives us here is a word for that comfortable Christian who says that life is protected here, that, that our, our existence in the West is safe, that there are no problems ahead for us, that we should stop being concerned, that we should stop thinking that there's gonna be persecution. Because isn't, isn't Jesus sort of responding to that here, right? If, if that's you, if you think that some of your brothers and sisters have, are overblown reactionaries, if you judge people because you think they have a persecution complex, isn't there something here for you to be corrected by? Um, Jesus does say beware. He does say beware. He does tell us to, to be alert. He, doesn't, he, doesn't t- he does tell us to be prepared for persecution. He, he sees a value in being alert. Uh, and so he calls us to it. And I think this is a word for the complacent Christian, especially... I think a Western complacent Christian who is not being where the, the complacent Western Christian who even judges other Christians who are more alert to trouble on the horizon. I think Jesus is, is, is in a sense sending a message here. Stop judging your brother for obeying Jesus's command. Jesus says to beware, don't judge your brother or your sister who is doing that. What does Jesus have to say to the comfortable person? Well, notice that here he's telling them to beware why because if because of where they're going, He says he grounds the reason to beware in the place where He is sending them. He says, "I am sending you out. Um, the place where you live matters. The place where you dwell matters uh, location location matters." Uh, when we lived in Mississippi, uh, Aaron and I decided we would take the kids on a family outing. We wanted to do something different. We, we wanted to get out of Jackson. We wanted to go somewhere different, and so we went down to New Orleans. Now, they would tell you to call it Nolens or New Orleans, and I can't do either of those. It's New Orleans. So we go to New Orleans, we, we go to the French, French Quarter, and we're talking to somebody about what we're going to do for the day, and we mentioned going to the French Quarter, and the lady we're talking to says, oh, you, there's a lot of interesting stuff to see down there, you're going to have a great time. But then she looked really sternly at, at Aaron and I, and she said, whatever you do, don't you take those precious babies down to Bourbon Street. Don't you take those babies down to Bourbon Street. Um We crossed Bourbon Street, and we saw enough vomit to just, for a lifetime, just crossing the street. Uh, So I I believed her. I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, we shouldn't have probably even seen that. The place where you go matters. The location matters. One part of town is safe. Another part is very dangerous. Why does it matter? It matters because of who is there and what they intend to do what kind of people they are, right? In the case of Bourbon Street, you had drunkards, violent people, unspeakable things going on. The place you're going to matters. That's why Jesus draws attention to it. He says, I'm sending you out. I'm sending you into the world. Um, He doesn't say, I'm sending you down to Easy Street. Um, He wants you to know this isn't downtown Disney. This isn't Disney Main Street, right? I'm sending you down Wolf Alley, you are not going to gumdrop and lollipop land. You are going to Bourbon Street. And Jesus is like, I'm sending you there. I'm sending you to the worst part of town. And so because of that, he says, beware. But it also matters who is in the place you're going. Jesus says, the people you're going to be around are wolves and they will, they will eat you right up. It is in, in the nature of a wolf to eat a sheep. Um, That's the fallen world we live in. That's the fallen people that we live among. Now, that doesn't mean that we should try to destroy or kill or take vengeance for ourselves. Of course, these wolves are meant to be the recipients of the gospel. By nature, he's sending us out among the wolves because the wolves need the message. Um, I think... Many of us, some of, some of you grew up in the church, and you heard the gospel all your life, and you love the Lord, and you would honestly say, in fact, in membership interviews, we will hear people say this so often, I don't remember a time that I didn't believe in Jesus. And many of you could, could say that, but many of you can remember times when you were wolves. Many of you can look back on your life and say, I once was a wolf, the Lord changed me. God gave me his message, and that's not me anymore. Um, This is Jesus' commentary on the fallen world. And so, because he knows the world, he knows people's hearts, and he says, you beware of them. You beware of them. Before we move to the next point, look a little further down at verses 24 and 25. He he explains why this persecution happens in the first place, and he roots it in himself. He actually says, it's my fault they're coming after you. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house to be eligible, how much more will they malign those of his household? So when Jesus tells us that the world is full of wolves, he's speaking from experience. Um, Jesus himself face tremendous resistance, tremendous opposition, extreme violence, and hostility. And he tells us, you aren't better than me. You're not greater than me. You're not above me. I'm the master and I have been mistreated. What on earth makes you think that you're going to have it smooth? And so it is our connection to Christ that makes us a target. Um, If you are a believer, you are united to Jesus by faith. When the world looks at you, they may see you, but on another level, they're looking, they're looking at a servant of Jesus. You are somebody who is united to Jesus. So on one level, what's happening? They are looking at Jesus. They're looking at an image of Jesus walking among themselves, and they do not like what they see. And we know what the world does with Jesus. Jesus was mistreated. If you are mistreated, do not be shocked. You should actually be like, this is normal. This is normal. Suffering for the Christian is the norm. It's not the exception. Peace for the Christian is the exception. That's how you really should think of it. And if if you feel like you are in a moment of peace, if you feel like you're in a moment of ease, thank God and see it. See yourself as being weird in the history of the church. Uh, This is a special moment. Second today, Jesus tells his people as they go out into the world that they should be confident. Interesting to follow that up with such uh, comforting words. In verse 19, he says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So he leads off. He says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak. By the way, Jesus is just speaking my language here. This is my personality type. My personality type, I'm the kind of person who delusionally thinks he can map out how that hard conversation is going to go. I'm the guy who goes, okay, if they say this, I'm going to say this. (laughs) And then if, if they say this, I'm gonna say this. I've got it, and then they say that instead, and your your map is ruined, um, you know. And and Jesus says, throw out that dumb diagram. <laughs> He's, Do not be anxious about this. Don't plan for this. You can't plan for this. He says, don't be afraid. He says, beware, but don't be afraid. Uh, beware, but don't be anxious. But if we if we go back on that back to that paranoia spectrum I mentioned before, I think you can see that what Jesus is doing is he's speaking he was speaking to the comfortable complacent Christian and telling them they shouldn't be afraid. And then he's also though in a sense he's also speaking here to the people who are afraid, right? He's he's speaking to the other end of the paranoia spectrum, to those who are like trouble's coming. Do you have 6 months worth of food in your garage? You know, like He's, you know, he's talking to that person here too. He's speaking to both of them and he's correcting all of us because we all need corrected. I'm not saying keeping six months worth of food in your garage is wrong. I don't care. Um, You know, got to present cartoonish images sometimes. Um, Jesus is talking to the person who is afraid, to the person who is overly paranoid, who is Planning to escape from civilization They're ready to pack up, run for the hills And start their own monastery You know, out, away from civilization That's what I think Jesus is saying here You know, just as some Christians need to be reminded to beware Some Christians need to be Reminded not to panic I don't know where you are on the spectrum Maybe you're both, depending on the day of the week Right Um, But notice Notice Jesus' priority here when we think of persecution, what are we worried about? We're worried about us, right? We're worried about what's going to happen to us. We're worried about if it's going to hurt. We worry about if we're going to lose our homes. We worry about if we're going to lose all this stuff we've been accumulating. We, maybe we worry about our families, right? We, we worry about these things. And Jesus, look at what he cares about. If you look at the passage, what does he say? Jesus is worried about what happens to the message because, you know, Jesus is like, will you be faithful? Will you say what's true when it's needed? And, and then he says, don't worry about that. Don't worry about what you'll say. Don't be anxious. What's the basis of the confidence he's, cause he's giving arguments upon arguments here. What's the, co- the basis of the, of the confidence. What's the basis for the lack of anxiety. He says, do not be anxious how you are to speak for, and we know that whatever follows this is the ground of the argument, right? Why aren't you to be anxious for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour? So he's saying, you're not to plan it. You can't prepare it. It will be given to you. It will be given to you. Now, how is that supposed to happen? He says, It is not you who speaks, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. By the way, um, so many times the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of Christ in Scripture. The spirit of Jesus, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of Christ. Here, he's called the spirit of the father, which I just want to use that as a moment to argue for something nerdy in Christian history called the filioque clause, where the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father and the son. So we have him being called the spirit of the father and the spirit of the son in scripture, but I'm not going to go any further. So if there are any Eastern Orthodox people in here who want a fist fight after the service, <laughs> but here he says, he says the, the ground of why you should not be anxious. What to say is that the spirit of your father will speak through you in your hardest moment. When you are the most tempted to run, The Spirit will be with you, and he will remind you that you are not alone. He will support you. We actually see this happening in Scripture. You see it in the early church. In Acts chapter 4, the text says that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. He's got a hard audience in front of him in Acts chapter 4, and he speaks to them, and the Spirit is the one who is speaking through him. Um, You see it in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen gives this speech before the crowd, and what does the crowd do? They stone him. Um, We see it in Paul's speech before the Roman rulers and the Jewish people. Over and over again, these men are brought before the rulers, and they're called to answer, and each and every time, God gives them the right answer in the moment. You don't just see it in the the text of scripture. You also see it in in the history of the early church. Um, Polycarp was born during the life and ministry of the apostles. And Polycarp knew the apostle John. And Polycarp became the bishop of Smyrna in the second century. And he was burned at the stake. And he was pierced with a spear. Why? Because he was a Christian. And so the Romans gave him an opportunity. They say, look, you can recant Jesus here. Give us a pinch of sacrifice to the Roman gods. And then here's what Polycarp says. Listen to what God gave him. Listen to what God put into his heart to say in this moment. And imagine if you could plan it. Imagine if you could plan this sort of thing. And in that moment, how, would you have it memorized? Would you? No, the answer is what's in and it comes out. Listen to what Polycarp says. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a while and after a while is quenched, but you're ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that's prepared for the wicked. It's an amazing hellfire sermon for a man who's about to be set on fire, right? He's like, You're going to face the fire. In the third century, around 256 AD, you had Cyp- Cyprian of Carthage. Cyprian of Carthage was brought before Galerius. Galerius was the last great persecution before Constantine made Christianity legal. if I could be really simplistic about it. And uh, Cyprian of Carthage refused to recant. He refused to recant Christian faith. He refused to sacrifice to the Roman gods. And so he was sentenced to death by the sword. And they told him he was guilty and they told him that he was sentenced to death. And listen to this. Listen to this speech. He said, thanks be to God. That's it. He did not have an elaborate speech. No elaborate speech is remembered. Instead, he simply thanked God that God would find him worthy of dying for the word of Jesus. You don't know what you'll say. You 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 may think, you know. You may think you know what you, you hope you would say. You hope what you would do. But you will only know when the moment comes. You won't know before that. Here's the thing. Jesus is inviting us to distrust ourselves here. Um, he is telling us that the more we distrust ourselves and the more we have confidence in Christ, the greater our strength and endurance will be under persecution. Um, Jesus is forbidding his disciples to look to themselves, to look to their wisdom, to look to their strength, to look to their cleverness. And instead he says, when your fear is greatest, trust me, trust my spirit, do not trust yourself. This is like, this is like a culmination of the truths that you have learned all your life. Along with the Spirit's own care for your for you coming to fruition in a way that you cannot fake or plan or manufacture. All the Sunday school lessons that you learned, all the sermons that you heard, all the Bible that you read, all the prayers that you prayed. Whatever is in here, it comes out. It comes out. And it, it comes out unbidden and unplanned. When, when John Calvin came to Geneva, Switzerland, he had fled from Roman Catholic France. And he knew many people in France who had suffered and who had died at the hands of the Pope and his followers. And Calvin makes this note. And when he says it, you know, you know he's saying it from experience. He's not saying it just as an abstract thing. He says, in our time, we have seen some martyrs who seemed to be almost devoid of speaking gifts and yet were no sooner called to make a public profession of their faith than they exhibited a command of appropriate and graceful language altogether miraculous so he's he's looking back to the people that he knows who died in France and he has heard the stories he has heard what the catholics did to the protestants he has heard about the people being set aflame While still alive. He has heard what they do to these people. And he he says. We've heard their speeches. And these are not speech making people. Jesus makes sure that his message is heard. Through the spirit. Not through our wisdom. Not through our cleverness. Not through our strength. Not through our planning. Now is the promise here. That we will be spared of suffering. Well, think about Acts chapter 7. Stephen gives this speech for the ages. It is one of the most brilliant biblical theological explorations of the history of Christianity through the eyes of the temple that you have ever heard. It is a brilliant sermon. And there is no way that guy had it written out on his hand. (laughs) He spoke it from the heart. He said what God gave him to say. He cut his listeners, in just the way the Spirit wanted him to, and they stoned him to death. That story does not end with him gallivanting away. Instead, he's dead at the end of the story. Something even more important than a long life is promised by Jesus, right? He does not promise a long life. His concern is not for your life. He, he doesn't even say, don't be anxious, you will not die. He doesn't say, don't be anxious, I'm going to carry you away. Uh, He doesn't say, don't be anxious. I'm going to lift you away and you won't experience the suffering. He doesn't say that. He doesn't promise it. Instead, he says, I'm going to make sure my message is protected. Are you anxious about persecution? Are you anxious that someday, let's get really American for a minute. You're worried that someday the first amendment is going to be rolled back and the courts are going to go against Christians and the online mob will get you fired Are you anxious about persecution? Jesus says the worst thing is not that suffering will come. The worst thing that could happen is for the message to be lost in our cloud of our cowardice. Beware. Don't be afraid. Why? Because of the promise of his presence. He says, you have me present with you. You have my spirit within you. If you have me with you. How can you be alone? If you have me with you, what, could, what should you fear? What should you realistically actually be afraid of? What can, what can they do to you? Hurt your body? Sure. Take your home? Yes. Uproot your material reality? Sure. But they can't touch your soul and they can't touch the gospel. Jesus says, don't be anxious. Christian, will you take this to heart? Are you anxious right now? Are you paranoid right now? Are you fearful right now? Yes, the world is changing. But please take Jesus seriously. Don't be anxious. He tells us, beware, but be confident. Third this morning, Jesus says, be wise. Look at verses 21 to 23 again. He says, brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So if you heard the last two points, you heard the the point about being where, you heard the point about being confident, then you might be left going, wait. So if persecution is real, and I should be on the lookout for it, But I'm also not supposed to be anxious or afraid of it. What am I supposed to do? It's a fair question. We're not to panic, nor are we to become indifferent. Uh, Jesus cautions us to be wise in how we cope with troubles when we see them come. Uh, Look what he does. First, he says this. Beware that trouble could come from somewhere close. He's saying, look, even your family. Even your family could turn you over. Um, Even your own parents or children could end up being the source of persecution. Don't be surprised if you end up encountering unbelief and persecution from those closest to you. Um, We shouldn't assume that familial closeness will be a protection against trouble. Uh, As I was thinking about this, I was actually thinking, man, I could do a whole sermon on unbelieving family members. You could do a whole sermon on unbelieving family members. And I suspect if we run around this room and I ask you all, hey, is every person in your family, every person in your immediate experience, every single person that you know in your family tree, a believer, and how do they treat you? I, I think every single one of us would know that that's not the case, that, that every single person in our whole family and uncles and aunts and parents, Uh, If you have that, I'm so glad for you, but so many do not have that. Um, Many people have unbelieving children or unbelieving parents, and it is such a source of pain for a Christian to know that. Jesus wants you to know, if that is you, that you are not the first or the last to know that sort of pain. What should we do? Jesus says we should endure, uh, persevere. That's what he says in verse 22. He says, The one who endures to the end will be saved. Endurance looks like actively resisting, but also passively suffering. Um, It is both standing firm and and enduring through the trials that we experience. That's what it means to persevere to the end. That's what it means to be the one who endures. You can imagine someone, though, um, objecting. They, they object to this and they say, how does the story end with all of us dead? Is that what this is supposed to be? Well, we see in these words that his plan is not for us to all throw ourselves into persecution. We're not meant to go and, and seek out persecution. We're not meant to look for trouble necessarily. You know, that passage in Second Timothy can leave us feeling so insecure. All who uh, desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And we can think, well, then I need to go find some trouble. Um, I have had times where the thought occurred to me. I I don't feel like I suffer like this. I, how do I even know I'm a Christian if this is true of, of Paul? Well, there was an early instance of this around 185, just a fascinating moment in church history. The Asian proconsul Arius Antonius was approached. He's a Roman and he was approached by a group of Christians. And guess what the Christians wanted? They demanded to be Executed. They, they were like, hey, we're Christians. <laughs> and, and Arius Antonius is like, what do you want? And they were like, aren't you supposed to kill us? And he's like, oh, yeah. And so he does. He obliges a few of them. But then who knows what happens in his heart and mind. But he just thinks to himself, this is weird. <laughs> this is weird. And he, so here's what he does. He sent them away. And here's what he said to them. He said to them, if they wanted to kill themselves, there was plenty of rope available in Rome for them to hang themselves. And there were plenty of cliffs for them to throw themselves from. (laughs) I just think about this because there is this moment in church history where it's so honorable to, to be persecuted. It's so honorable to be a martyr that eventually Christians begin to think that that's our purpose. This is why we exist. We're supposed to be killed. And what it turns out is this, it's not honorable for us to seek out persecution. And it's not honorable for us to invite it or pursue it or seek after it. Sometimes standing firm might involve fleeing from trouble and and living to see another day. Honestly, ordinary Christian living just means sometimes getting up in the morning, taking care of your family, taking care of yourself, going about your daily life, Doing your job well, representing Jesus in your daily life. All of life is not meant to be the rooftop death experience. That's not what it's all supposed to be. Ordinary life is spent dying to yourself day in and day out, living not for yourself, but for others. And that's one thing I think these Christians missed out on. They forgot what life was about and they decided that life was really about death. Jesus says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. I think it's important that Jesus said this, because you could imagine if he didn't. You could imagine if he didn't, Christians experiencing persecution, but also fearing there's something wrong with running. Maybe they say, look, the, the, the Romans are going house to house. They're asking us if we're Christians. And there's something sinful about fleeing to another town. And so they don't do it, and so they let themselves die because they think that's what Jesus is calling for here. After all, who wants to be a coward? And yet Jesus says this to us. It's very gracious. His words here are comforting. He's saying that that a really faithful Christian is is not suicidal and looking to get killed. It is good that he said this. In in the early church, we also know that church fathers obeyed this command here. Um, Polycarp was eventually killed, but before he was killed... He sought escape from his persecutors. Um, Cyprian of Antioch was a bishop in the church. He, had, he had, uh, tried to avoid martyrdom as well when he was able to. Um, there is something beautifully faithful about a person like Stephen bearing witness and speaking the truth uh, regardless of the consequences. Do to me what you will. There is something beautiful about that. But there is also something wonderful about a saint on the run who can only depend on the Lord for his survival. And this person is able to live another day and speak the word again in another town. And and Jesus says that the goal isn't to die. The goal is for the message to spread and for the Christian to endure to the end. We need to have a balanced understanding of what's going on here. Christian, will you live in that balance of what Jesus says? Yes. Beware. Yes. Be wise. Yes, be alert. You're not greater than Jesus. You're not greater than your master. But please, in your awareness, do not become paranoid or fearful. There's a reason why in the scripture there are so many commands for God's people not to be afraid, not to be fearful. It is flooded with that command. It might be the most common command in the Bible to not be afraid. If you fear the idea of suffering or, or martyrdom or some sort of loss, you should know that whatever you go through, the promise of Jesus is God will be with you and he will protect his message. His, his spirit will uphold you and comfort you. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will give you the comforter. I will give you my very presence. You will never be alone. I am with you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers, they won't overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flames shall not consume you. That's what Jesus is telling us. What a promise for us to carry with us in life's hardest moments. Beware, but be confident. Let's pray. Lord Jesus... May we be faithful, but not fearful. May we be confident in you and confident in your spirit, whatever should come our way in life. Whether the comforts and protections of our current form of government hold for years, for decades, for centuries even, or whether the world around us changes and that sense of worldly security should slip away. Come what may, would you hold us close Give us your spirit and strengthen us in whatever moment we find ourselves. Let us lean heavily upon you and none upon ourselves. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.